We didn't plan for, um, uh, I should say, we didn't know in giving Pastor Woody off this week that um, he'd be in the hospital for seven and a half hours yesterday. So um, please continue to pray for him, Kim, and the family um, with this blood clot. Uh, one of the things I think I value, one of our values in this church is to, to not just have the same person in the pulpit every week. You know, I think it's a really blessing because we have a, a great staff and community of preachers that we get to share. So it's good to be with you this morning, but just want to make sure to remind you to keep Kim in your prayers this morning. After that, good morning. <laughs> Um, as always, it's a joy and a blessing to be with you all. Uh, my prayer, though, this morning is, uh, in, in preparing this has been that we can hear clearly from the Lord this morning. We can hear clearly his word for us. Amen? If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Luke chapter 10. We'll get there in a little bit. You can also follow up front. You know, an interesting thing in preparing to preach this morning is that I kept getting struck by the fact that our passage this morning, Luke 10, 25 to 37, it is perfectly sandwiched in the middle of the chapter. On the front end of the chapter of Luke 10, we learn that Jesus sends out 72. And on the back end, we learn from Mary the joy of sitting at the Lord's feet. And yes, in the middle, we have our text this morning, one of the most famously known texts in all the scriptures, the story of the Good Samaritan. You know, what makes this interesting, the Good Samaritan being in the middle of the chapter, what makes it interesting is that as good Bible reading and Bible believing Christians, we often go straight to our text, right? I mean, we know that there's a context, we know that there's background, we know that there's culture, there's setting, but we go straight to the text and what it says for us. It's all about me, right? And we know, and we even know that there's structure in the Bible. And don't freak out when you hear structure, right? I mean, every written document has structure. You know how I know this? A text message is different from an email. An email is different from a letter. A letter is different from a magazine, it's different from a novel, it's different from an encyclopedia. And like I said in the first service, for those of you younger than me in the room, encyclopedias are the really big books in your grandma's basement that people used before Wikipedia. You know, I was going to put newspaper on this list too, but even I have a hard time explaining what a newspaper is. But structure. Structure matters in everything you write. And we know also that there's a primary audience, that there's people in these stories in the Bible who hear the words for the very first time in their language, in that context. Yet even still, don't we easily dismiss context? Don't we forget structure? Don't we overlook that primary audience? Why? I mean, this is God's word for me, right? No. No, sisters and brothers. Scripture has always been God's word for us. Scripture has always been God's word for us, all of us, the saints from the beginning, the saints today, and yes, even the saints to come. Scripture has always been God's word for all of us. Amen? Amen. And no, I don't think I'm being all high and mighty. You know, it's like he's got the seminary degree now. Let's be snooty about it. I think I might be one of the worst purveyors of taking scripture out of context, regardless of structure and audience. For example, if you've ever received an email from me, you can say amen on this. What do I do at the bottom of my emails? The very bottom, I usually write what? In Christ, Hank. And I throw your Bible verse, John 3:16, Romans 8:28, Jeremiah 29:11. Now, I usually just share whatever verse or passage is in my heart or what I've been meditating on that day, or honestly, sometimes I just share what pops in my head. You know, my only rhyme and reason is that hopefully it's a blessing to you. But let's be real. I know I'm not the only one that does this, right? For example, I'm not calling anyone by name, but some of us might do this. Someone needs Jesus. What do we give them? John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Someone's having a real hard time. Life has got them down. What do we give them? Romans 8:28. And we know 
that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. And how about this one? This might be my favorite verse, right? Because you can use this verse anytime, anywhere. Someone was just born. Someone just graduated from somewhere. Someone just got a new job. Someone's got a new crossroads in life. Boom, you give them this one, right? Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. We love these verses. And if we're honest, we love giving these verses to our sisters and brothers, don't we? And it's good. It's good. But please hear me on this. We do well to take scripture and meditate on it. We do well to share it, to memorize it, to dwell on it, to live it. We do well. And this is what you're doing with scripture. Keep doing it. God bless. That's good. However, however, we also have to be good stewards of scripture. And part of being good stewards of scripture means that we must be willing to take time to see what is the context. What's going on here? What is the structure what is this first audience hearing? Because I think doing so this morning for the Good Samaritan story in Luke 10, I think it'll lead to this simple truth. You cannot understand the Good Samaritan if you don't understand that Luke writes here in context, in his style and structure, to his audience then and to us. He writes that, yes, the heart of this chapter, the meat of this chapter is the Good Samaritan. But on the front end, you also have to know that those who believe in Jesus, all of us, all of you who believe in Jesus, all of you who seek to live and follow him, you have been sent out into the world by Jesus himself. Amen? Amen. You know, if we do this, if we're looking at the context and culture of Luke 10, we'll also get this truth. We'll get this truth that Luke writes at the back end of the chapter, that those who believe in Jesus, all those who believe in Jesus, we have to stop being busy. Stop with all the work. Stop with all the noise. Stop with all the distractions. We have to stop. 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 And after we stop, we must rest at the feet of the Lord and in his presence. Amen? And then the thing we need to hear about resting in the Lord's presence is this is not just some future tense. You know, resting at the Lord's feet and in his presence is not just for the future to come. It is not even just when we die. The rest at the Lord's feet is rest that's needed in our here and in our now. If we are true followers of Jesus Christ, we must make time to stop and to rest in his presence. Amen? Amen. All right, now we got the Good Samaritan. I think Josh is going to put it up for you. I'll be reading Luke 10, 25 to 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three 
do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Our Father and our God, help us this morning to go. Help us this morning to do likewise. Help us this morning to live and love as you lived and loved. In your son's name, amen. You know, this morning we're going to continue exploring what it means to be brethren in Christ. We're going to look at this core value of serving compassionately. Now, some of you are new, so you don't know we've been doing this. It's only been a couple years, so we're catching up. But this is number seven. We've got three more to go. It's been a while, but we're going to get through them. Again, the reason we started looking at what it means to be brethren in Christ is we wanted this continuing effort to learn what it means, to examine these core values, the beliefs that make us who we are the truths that we desire to be self-evident among us, the essence of who God has called us to be in front of him and in front of our world. You know, like I've stated before, knowing our history is only part of what it means to be brethren in Christ. The second part in learning what it means to be brethren in Christ is knowing our values, knowing the things that we hold dear, knowing the truths that we live to set forth, the central beliefs that make us who we are. You know, my goal this morning is for us to examine these beliefs that are so etched into our DNA, they encompass the brethren in Christ. You know, Josh is going to put it up real quick. Our, we're going to read this together in a minute. Our core values, if you remember, were born of the Holy Spirit and with reliance on God. They were born after studying the scriptures together. They were born after prayerfully seeking insights from God and how he has revealed himself to us in our history, in our tradition, and yes, even today. This morning, we'll examine our seventh core value. Please read with me. Serving compassionately. We value serving others at their point of need, following the example of our Lord Jesus. You know, the idea to serve others is not unique to the brethren in Christ. Even though we might be one of the few, the very few, that have a towel and a basin in our logo. So take that, right? The idea to serve is not even unique to Christianity. Many organized groups of people, whether by religion, family, institution, nation, many groups of people understand, and some of them even execute on this impetus to serve others. The idea to serve compassionately is also not unique to the brethren in Christ or Christians as a whole. For example, the last year or so, I've been amazed, amazed by the good work of many good non-Christian institutions that they're doing on the regular. Doctors Without Borders, UNICEF, Khan Academy, Charity Water, Kiva, Make-A-Wish Foundation, and so on and so on. Heck, nowadays, it's even hard to find a celebrity who doesn't have a charity or cause that they're passionate about. I think it's one of the signs that you've made it now. You've got to find a cause. What do they do? They implore us to save the whales, right? They implore us to feed the children, to save the music, to stand up to cancer, and so on and so on and so on. Charity, service seems to be in our culture, but I will say this. If you want to know part of the core of what it means to be brethren in Christ, you must know, you absolutely must believe, you wholeheartedly must live to serve compassionately, to meet others at their point of need as you live to follow Jesus Christ. Amen? You know, this compassionate service to the brethren in Christ has led us to mission fields in Zambia and Zimbabwe. It's led us to Spain and England and India. It's led us to Nicaragua and Honduras. It's led us to Malawi and Mexico, and so on and so on. This compassionate service has led us to build orphanage and thrift stores in urban areas, to build schools and medical research centers, to build shelters and homes for many of those that society seems to so easily behind. 
You know, one of the things I'm most, I don't know if you can say you're proud of this, but I'm proud of this. One of the things I'm most proud about this congregation is this idea to meet people where they're at. It's not just our DNA. It's not just our heritage. It's our inheritance. It is what we do and keep doing. It's what we do what, once this room's cleaned out and a new generation comes forth. It's what they will keep doing. And what I'm proud of this church is that this compassionate service finds its home at Harrisburg BIC. You know, this is why we send out and support mission workers in faraway lands and right here at home. This is why we reach out to our community, not just through services, but also through relationships built. And this is why we reach out to our community, not just with charity, but also with reconciliation. And you know, and this is why we endeavor. That means we do all we can to not just give people temporary salves. No, we endeavor, we work for people to have the holistic salvation, the holistic journey that only true life in Christ can bring. Amen? And this is why I love our text this morning. You all know the story. The lawyer gets up and asks a question. <laughs> it's funny because I, I said this in the first service. Lawyers always have questions. That's a surprise. And, and every time I, and Patrick was sitting right there, so I felt like I was picking on him. And then Andy was sitting right there, but I think he left. So I don't have to pick on that person. But, you know, the lawyer gets up in our story and asks a question because that's what lawyers do. They have questions. You know, a lot of preachers, I think, though, spend time, too much time, I would say, picking up on this poor lawyer. You see, the truth is, at this point, the lawyer's not doing anything wrong. In fact, the question he posed, what must I do to inherit eternal life, that question, that question was a common theological question. Kind of how today you might walk up to your pastor and say, but seriously, why is there so much suffering in the world? The kind of question that, you know, you might even walk up to Jesus and say, but seriously, are you really the only way? The kind of question, if we're honest, that Jesus might look down and ask us and say, but seriously, why are you so quick to segregate instead of reconcile? If you are indeed all my family. It was a common theological question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? In fact, this challenge was also so common that the rabbis, they reasoned together by questioning one another. This is what they did. See, this is why I don't think Jesus was the least bit bothered by all. I think pastors and preachers are more bothered by the question than Jesus was. I mean, if anything, this question is probably more akin to when my sweet little Harper climbs on me, hides around my back, pokes out her head, and says, boo. Because, you know, in her little mind, in her mind, even though she's right behind me, she's been hiding where I couldn't possibly find her. The smile that reaches my face and the love that warms my heart that might be more akin to what Jesus felt and did when the lawyer asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So then Jesus in his true post-postmodern self, I think that's where we are now. I could be wrong. But in reality, I don't think anyone knows if we're postmodern or not. But Jesus in his true self, and that's what I want you to hear, continues along in the rabbinic or teaching tradition. Really, he does what all great teachers do. Instead of force-feeding you an answer, they answer your question with a question. Parents, this works unbelievably well with teenagers. Not for them, but mostly for you. They get frustrated, but you get to win, and winning is good. <laughs> Seriously, Jesus answers the lawyer's question with a question. So the lawyer is forced back to what? Go back to the scriptures. He's forced to do what? Reason for himself. He's forced to getting back and uncovering the answer for himself. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what is written in the scriptures? How, how do you read it? 
ever so sharp, the lawyer responds with the best Sunday school answer ever. Actually, this was before Jesus, so maybe it's the best Shabbat day school ever, right? You know how in Sunday school, no matter what the question was, the answer is Jesus? Well, if you were a Jew back then, a Jew today, the answer is always the Shema. It doesn't matter what the question is, the answer is always the Shema. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, Rabbi Jesus, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength, and love the neighbor as yourself. That was an impressive answer. Now, I think it's impressive because the lawyer is in line with all Jewish thinking, all Jewish theology, all Jewish understanding, all Jewish interpretation. In fact, most Jews believed, and in reality today, they still believe that the greatest commandment is to love God with our entire being, to love God with all our will, to love God with all our understanding, to love God with all of ourselves. Also, this is an impressive answer because the lawyer moves from the Shema of Deuteronomy 6, the great commandment to every believer in God, and he adds on to it. That's right. He makes his answer stronger by adding the Leviticus 19 teaching that says, hey, you also have to love the other as yourself. This was a great answer. I don't think we take time to think enough on how strong of an answer this was by the lawyer. In fact, it's such a great answer that Jesus... Jesus himself gave the same exact answer in the same exact situation in Mark chapter 12. You can look it up, Mark 12, 28 to 31. In that scene, another lawyer has a question. Big surprise, right? Another lawyer comes up and says, hey, Rabbi Jesus, of all the commandments, which is the most important? And guess what Jesus said? He stated the Shema. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And there, in that scene, Jesus also added the Leviticus 19 teaching when he said, the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. To understand the significance of this is most Jewish scholars believe that at the least, maybe, you have about 619 commandments in the Old Testament, right? So if you can shrink them down to two, that's a win, right? A lot of us like books and stories, but we like the abridged versions. Jesus shrunk them down to two. So you see, when the lawyer in Luke 10 gives his answer, he's in line with tradition, He's giving a proper understanding of the scriptures. And get this, he's quoting Jesus himself. Now, we're Christians, so we love to over-spiritualize things, right? This isn't an over-spiritualization. You know, this isn't like transitive property, right? Well, scripture is the word of God, and he's quoting the word of God, so he's quoting Jesus. No, 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 no. I think it's deeper than that. It's deeper than that because he is actually saying the same words and making the same argument that Jesus did almost word for word in the same scenario. What an impressive answer. What an impressive answer. And what a great scene that must have been, right? But then, then the flesh kicks in. The lawyer could have simply stopped there and walked away. Jesus even invited him to do so, right? When he said, hey, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will leave. It could have all ended there and the story would have been great. But you see, when the flesh kicks in, the expert of the law who had given such an impressive answer, he gets defeated by his own desire for self-justification. 
He leaves the safe waters of tradition. He leaves the safe waters of the Shema. He leaves the safe waters of all the commandments that are interpreted and quoted by Jesus himself. He wades deeper and asks Jesus, so, um, but who is my neighbor? Now, for all of us who've ever said too much, for all of us who've ever gone too far, for all of us who live to put our foot in our mouths, we can feel his pain though, right? Seeking to justify yourself before God but apart from God, will always come from the flesh. Hear me on that. Seeking to justify yourself before God and apart from God will always come from the flesh. Amen? Amen. See, because Jesus could have answered that your neighbor, dear child, was not just the Jews. It's never just been about the Jews. Anyone who believed, if you go back to your Easter, if, Easter, if you go back to your Exodus and Exodus chapter 12, you'll remember that it wasn't just the Jews I took out of slavery. It was everyone who believed, everyone who entered into our family when my father delivered all of you out of Egypt. Or Jesus could have answered, well, you remember Solomon's temple that we built, right? You remember the reason why it was built? It was built not just for the Jews. It was built that my father, that our father's house could be a house not just for Israel, but for all peoples. Jesus could have said, neighbor, dear child, is the other, the foreigner, the slave, the immigrant, the outsider, the least of these the one society so easily tends to leave behind, the ones you forget, but I never will. Jesus could have answered with any of all of that, but instead, he tells a story. Why? Why? Because we love stories. We remember stories. We live stories. We're entertained by stories. We learn from them. Oh, and also, because Jesus' stories are parables, they were able to perfectly combine everyday scenes with his kingdom principles. And in this story, a man most likely a Jew, you know, but just a regular Joe, Joe the Jew, is making the trek down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's a 17-mile journey, and it's normalized as anyone, you know, everyone is normalized to them back then as, say, one of us after church going to York or Carlisle. It's a regular trip. Yet this trip was dangerous. You know, the road was notoriously known for robbers who would prey on travelers, especially those brave, or you might say stupid, enough to travel by themselves. Early church father Jerome called this road the red or bloody way. William Barclay even comments that in the 19th century, not that long ago, in the 19th century, it was still customary, i.e. necessary, i.e. you have to pay local chiefs and local sheikhs if you wanted to pass on this road. So in our story, the easily foreseeable happens, right? The man is attacked, he's beaten, he's left for dead. He's stripped of everything, including his clothes, not because they were made in New York or Milan or Paris. They take even his clothes because most people back then had one set of clothes. So even your clothes was very, very valuable. So the priest comes along, or you could say the Christian, right? Because remember, in Christ, just as the Lord had decided at Sinai, in Christ, we're all made now what? A kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood. So the priest of the Christian comes, and he's, he's going down that same road. And like Martha that we'll learn later in Luke 10, the priest, the Christian, is too busy with all he's got to do. Or maybe he's too busy with his reputation. So he sees the man broken and beaten and half dead, and what does he do? He passes by on the other side. 
Next comes a Levite. And originally I was going to say a pastor, but you know, I like pastors too much. So we'll just say someone who really dedicates their life to Jesus making a difference. You know, another member of society with a very high moral standing, someone who would actually be expected much more than the priest to do something because they didn't have the same rules and regulations. So what does he do? He peeks in a little bit closer. He looks and says, you know what? He walks also by on the other side. And as surely as the tension rises, the audience leans in closer to Jesus. Surely the hero is about to come onto the scene. And Jesus does not disappoint. He introduces the hero. But wait, what? A Samaritan? Jesus, seriously? A Samaritan? A Samaritan? The ones who claimed to worship God but corrupted the scriptures for centuries. The same ones who represented an unchosen race because they were half-breeds. The same ones who you would feel unclean, looking at, much less talking to. The ones who defiled our faith, mocked our holy sites, and served as imposters for centuries. Jesus, your hero, is a Samaritan? Yes, the hero of the story is a Samaritan. To be honest, we know this story so well. We too easily ignore the scandal of Jesus making the Samaritan the hero of the story. I mean, a Samaritan, even today, think about this. We have good Samaritan hospitals. We have good Samaritan clinics. We even have good Samaritan laws. At best, what do we say? Well, you know, the the Jews and the Samaritans, they just didn't really like each other. See, it goes much deeper than that. The Samaritan being the hero would be the equivalent of Jesus walking to a church in the 60s on Monday, September 16th in Birmingham, Alabama, the day after that tragic hate-filled bombing that killed those four precious little girls. The, the, the scandal would be Jesus walking into an audience and preaching that the hero of the story is the son of a Klansman. Or maybe closer to home, on September 12, 2001, saying the hero of the story was the son of a key member of Al-Qaeda. There is scandal in choosing the Samaritan as the hero of the story. Jesus knew it. The audience felt it. You know, to be honest, we often ignore that. You know, we we celebrate the Samaritan, but no one in that audience, hear me on this, no one in that audience would have celebrated Jesus choosing a Samaritan. Just like no one would want to hear you if on September 12th you say, you know what, the hero is Al-Qaeda. Or if you go to Birmingham, Alabama and say the heroes, the KKK, no one would celebrate that. That's what Jesus is doing in this Good Samaritan story. No one would celebrate it. No one except maybe Jesus. You know, Jesus was celebrated because in his family, his children might not look the same, but they look like him. Amen. Jesus was celebrated because his children may not call the same place home, but they have a home with him. Amen. Jesus would celebrate it because his children might not speak the same language, might not come from the same culture, but they carry in their hearts a language of love. Amen? So the Samaritan is the hero. He comes onto the scene. He sees the suffering, dying, and broken man, and he's moved to have compassion on him. So he meets the fallen man at his point of need. He cleans and disinfects the wounds. He carries him on his own donkey to a place where he can get even better care. The Samaritan hero doesn't even stop there. He takes out money, he pays the caregiver, and then he vows on the collateral of his word, give him the best care, he seems to be saying. And whatever the price, I will repay it. You know, and while the rest of the audience is stunned into silence that a Jewish rabbi would make a Samaritan wanderer a hero, Jesus, in his true post-postmodern or whatever he is self, Maybe it's just him being a good teacher. He poses the final question. So you, my son, and the rest of you too, which of these three do you think was a neighbor 
to the man who fell into the hands of robbers. And the lawyer, and inherently Jesus' audience of well, would have to concede. See, when we tell this story, we celebrate the Good Samaritan. But for everyone in the audience that day, that was a concession. We tell this story, we say, yeah, the Good Samaritan. But everyone would have been like, ah, I guess the Samaritan. It's not a celebration in this story. It's a concession. The one who showed him mercy. And, you know, in Jewish tradition and culture, that word packs so much more meaning. In our culture, we're like, yeah, he was the nice guy. You know, he was the one who showed mercy. But to them, to say the one who showed him mercy reckons with the word hesed, that love in action, the love to the disadvantaged and the weak, the love that's unmerited favor from God. Some of us might call it the agape love. That's what he says. The one who gives him love as God would give him love. The one who met him at his point of need. The one who was indeed his neighbor by loving him. You know, and after all that, Jesus' only command in this entire passage is simply this. Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. You know, in his last speech, the one he gave at the Church of God in Christ headquarters in Memphis, Tennessee, on April 3rd, 1968, the day before he was assassinated, Dr. King talked about this Good Samaritan story. You know, everybody remembers that last quote. You've probably seen it on YouTube at least, right? Everybody remembers that last quote where Dr. King, boldly and unafraid about threats on his life and even death to come, some even say it was prophetic because he must have sensed it coming because the very next day, he's killed. But even before that, in that same speech about the mountaintop, King highlights this same Good Samaritan story. In so doing, Dr. King, like Jesus his Christ, Jesus our Christ, Dr. King calls his listeners to a dangerous unselfishness. Does that describe you? Dr. King says we need to have a dangerous unselfishness as exhibited by the Samaritan, the kind of dangerous unselfishness that doesn't say, if I stop to help this man, what will it do to me? No, the kind of dangerous unselfishness that says, if I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? And that, sisters and brothers, is the core teaching of the Good Samaritan story. We must stop to help always. We've said this time and time again. All of us can shout at the darkness in the world, but Jesus shouted out loud and proud. He said, no, you, you are the light of the world. All of us can say, you know, we love God, we love Jesus, we love the Holy Spirit, but Jesus right now in John 14 promises, I go to prepare a place for you, but he sends the Spirit and he sends the church. We have to be willing to not just see the darkness, but to shine brightly in it. We have to be willing to say, we want this dangerous unselfishness. We have to be willing to say, I will not be about me. I'll be about them. We have to be willing to say, it's not just about protecting me and my family, me and what I got to do. Because in Christ, every single person is his family. Dr. King wanted us to have a dangerous unselfishness. When we think about the Good Samaritan, are we willing to say, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? Or are we going to live for Christ and be bold enough to say, if I do not stop to help, what will happen to him? We must stop to help always. You know, sometimes it might be people who bring trouble upon themselves. We all know those people. It might be people who make bad decisions or bad life choices. But here's the thing. Your job is not to judge them. Your role is simply to stop and help. 
It might be people who the rest of the world says they're different from you. They're not in your family. They don't look like you. They don't earn as much money as you. They don't have your education. But your job isn't to do what the rest of the world does. Your job is to what? Stop and help. You know, it might be people. It might be people who the rest of this world wants you to be separated from. It might be, the re- if, we're, if we're honest, it might be people the rest of this world wants you to be segregated from. But your job is not to know what the news media says. Your job is not to know what even you say. Your job is to know what Jesus says. And he says, don't judge them. Stop and help. You know, one of my favorite all-time quotes, one of my life mantras really, is simply these words by one of my favorite rabbis, a guy by the name of Frederick Beekner, who says, the place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meets. The place God calls you is the place where your deep gladness and the world's hunger meets. I'd like to invite the worship team back up. You know, all of us who say we believe in Jesus, who count ourselves as members of his family, we have all been called and we have all been sent out. It's not just the missionaries, it's not just the pastors. Luke 10 says Jesus sends out everyone. We are all called to rest at the feet of Jesus. But yes, yes, we're not just called to be good Samaritans to our world. We're not just called to be good Samaritans some of the time. We're called to be Jesus all of the time. Amen? You know, in this last song, we're going to sing Tim Hughes' words. We're going to sing, Jesus, you have called us. Freely we've received. Now freely we will give. We must go. Now we got to think about it. Not even we got to pray about it. Not even maybe in the future when I don't have all this going on. We must go. Live to feed the hungry. Stand beside the broken. We must go. Stepping forward. Keep us from just singing. Move us into action. We must go. We must go. We must go. Amen.